Chapter 38, Part 1 of Struggles and Triumphs, or Forty Years' Recollections of P.T. Barnum, written by himself. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matt Benzing, Oxford, Ohio. Struggles and Triumphs of P.T. Barnum, Chapter 38 Political and Personal, Part 1 I began my political life as a Democrat, and my newspaper, The Herald of Freedom, was a Jackson Democratic Journal. While always taking an active interest in political matters, I had no desire for personal preferment, and, up to a late period, steadily declined to run for office. Nevertheless, in 1852 or 1853, prominent members of the party with which I voted urged the submission of my name to the state convention as a candidate for the office of governor, and although the party was then in the ascendancy and a nomination would have been equivalent to an election, I peremptorily refused. In spite of this refusal, which was generally known, several votes were cast for me in the convention. The Kansas strifes in 1854 shook my faith in my party though I continued to call myself a Democrat, often declaring that if I thought there was a drop of blood in me that was not Democratic, I would let it out if I had to cut the jugular vein. When, however, secession threatened in 1860, I thought it was time for a new departure, and I identified myself with the Republican Party. During the active and exciting political campaign of 1860, which resulted in Mr. Lincoln's first election to the presidency, it will be remembered that wide-awake associations, with their uniforms, torches, and processions, were organized in nearly every city, town, and village throughout the North. Arriving at Bridgeport from New York at 5 o'clock one afternoon, I was informed that the wide-awakes were to parade that evening and intended to march out to Lindencroft. So I ordered two boxes of sperm candles and prepared for a general illumination of every window in the front of my house. Many of my neighbors including several Democrats, came to Lindencroft in the evening to witness the illumination and see the wide-awake procession. My nearest neighbor, Mr. T., was a strong Democrat, and before he came to my house he ordered his servants to stay in the basement and not to show a light above ground, thus intending to prove his Democratic convictions and conclusions by the darkness of his premises. And so, while Lindencroft was all ablaze with a flood of light, the next house was black as a coal hole. My neighbor, Mr. James D. Johnson, was also a Democrat, but I knew he would not spoil a good joke for the sake of politics, and I asked him to engage the attention of Mr. and Mrs. T. and to keep their faces turned towards Bridgeport and the approaching procession, the light of whose torches could already be seen in the distance, while another Democratic friend, Mr. George A. Wells, and I ran over and illuminated Mr. T.'s house. This we did with great success, completing our work five minutes before the procession arrived. As the wide awakes turned into my grounds and saw that the house of Mr. T was brilliantly illuminated, they concluded that he had become a sudden convert to republicanism and gave three rousing cheers for him. Hearing his name thus cheered and wondering at the cause, he happened to turn and see that his house was lighted up from basement to attic and uttering a single profane ejaculation, he rushed for home. He was not able, however, to put out the lights till the wide awakes had gone on their way, 
rejoicing under the impression that one more Republican had been added to their ranks. When the rebellion broke out in 1861, I was too old to go to the field, but I supplied four substitutes and contributed liberally from my means for the cause of the Union. After the defeat at Bull Run, July 21, 1861, peace meetings began to be held in different parts of the northern states, and especially in Fairfield and Litchfield counties in Connecticut. It was usual in these assemblies to display a white flag bearing the word peace above the national flag, and to make and listen to harangues denunciatory of the war. One of these meetings was advertised to be held August 24th at Stepney, ten miles north of Bridgeport. On the morning of that day, I met Elias Howe, Jr., who proposed to me that we should drive up to Stepney, attend the peace meeting, and hear for ourselves whether the addresses were disloyal or not. We agreed to meet at the post office at 12 o'clock at noon, and I went home for my carriage. On the way, I met several gentlemen to whom I communicated my intention, asking them to go also, and as Mr. Howe invited several of his friends to accompany us, when we met at noon, at least twenty gentlemen were at the place of rendezvous with their carriages, ready to start for Stepney. I am quite confident that not one of us had any other intention in going to this meeting than to quietly listen to the harangues, and if they were found to be in opposition to the government, and calculated to create disturbance or disaffection in the community and deter enlistments, it would be best to represent the matter to the government at Washington, and ask that measures might be taken to suppress such gatherings. As we turned into Main Street, we discovered two large omnibuses filled with soldiers who were at home on furlough and who were going to Stepney. Our lighter carriages outran them, and so arrived at Stepney in time to see the white peace flag run up over the stars and stripes when we quietly stood in the crowd while the meeting was organized. It was a very large gathering, and some fifty ladies were on the seats in front of the platforms on which were the officers and speakers of the meeting. A preacher, Mr. Charles Smith, was invited to open the proceedings with prayer, and the military and civil history of Connecticut during the War of 1861-1865 by W. A. Crawford and John M. Morris Thus continues the record of this extraordinary gathering. Quote, he, Smith, had not, however, progressed far in his supplication when he slightly opened his eyes and beheld, to his horror, the Bridgeport omnibuses coming over the hill, garnished with Union banners and vocal with loyal cheers. This was the signal for a panic. Bull Run, on a small scale, was reenacted. The devout Smith and the undelivered orators, it is alleged, took refuge in a field of corn. The procession drove straight to the pole, unresisted, the hostile crowd parting to let them pass. And a tall man, John Platt, amid some mutterings, climbed the pole, reached the halyards, and the mongrel banners were on the ground. Some of the peacemen, rallying, drew weapons on the invaders, and a musket and a revolver were taken from them by soldiers at the very instant of firing. Another of the defenders fired a revolver and was chased into the field. Still others, waxing belligerent, were disarmed, and a number of loaded muskets found stored in an adjacent shed were seized. The stars and stripes were hoisted upon the pole and wildly cheered. P.T. Barnum was then taken on the shoulders of the boys in blue and put on the platform, where he made a speech full of patriotism, spiced with the humor of the occasion. Captain James E. Dunham also said a few words to the point. 
The Star-Spangled Banner was then sung in chorus, and a series of resolutions passed, declaring that loyal men are the rightful custodians of the peace of Connecticut. Elias Howe, Jr., chairman, made his speech when the crowd threatened to shoot the speakers. If they fire a gun, boys, burn the whole town, and I'll pay for it. After giving the citizens wholesome advice concerning the substituted flag and their duty to the government, the procession returned to Bridgeport, with the white flag trailing in the mud behind an omnibus. They were received at Bridgeport by approving crowds and were greeted with continuous cheers as they passed along. End quote. On our way back to Bridgeport, the soldiers threatened a descent upon the farmer office, but I strongly appealed to them to refrain from such a riotous proceeding, telling them that as law-abiding citizens they should refrain from acts of violence, and especially should make no appeal to the passions of a mob. So confident was I that the day's proceedings had ended with the reception of the soldiers on their return from Stepney, that in telegraphing a full account of the facts to the New York papers, I added that there was no danger of an attack on the farmer office, since leading loyal citizens were opposed to such action as unnecessary and unwise. But the enthusiasm with which the soldiers had been received, and the excitement of the day, prompted them to break through their resolutions, and half an hour after my telegram had been sent to New York, they rushed into the farmer office, tumbled the type into the street, and broke the presses. I did not approve of this summary suppression of the paper, and offered the proprietors a handsome subscription to assist in enabling them to renew the publication of The Farmer. One of the editors of this paper went south, and connected himself with the journal in Augusta, Georgia. The remaining proprietor shortly afterwards reissued The Farmer, but the peace meetings which had been advertised for different towns were never held. The gathering at Stepney was the last of the kind. Elias Howe, Jr., although he was a man of wealth and well-advanced in years, enlisted as a private in the 17th Regiment of Connecticut Volunteers and served in the Army of the Potomac. Once, when his fellow soldiers, not having been paid off, were in need of money, he advanced 13,000 due them, and when his regiment was disbanded and discharged from service, he chartered, at his own expense, a special train to bring them from New Haven to Bridgeport where they had a public reception. Mr. Howe, like all men of his reputed wealth and liberality, was constantly besieged by solicitors for all sorts of charities, nor was he free from such applications when he was serving as a common soldier in Virginia. On one occasion, a worthy priest came to him and asked for a subscription to a church, which was then building. Who is it, exclaimed Howe, that talks of building churches in this time of war? The priest ventured to say that he was trying to build in his parish a church which was to be known as St. Peter's. St. Peter's, is it? asked Howe. Well, St. Peter was, in his way, a fighting man. He drew a sword once and cut off a man's ear. On the whole, I think, he added, as he gave a handsome sum of money to the priest. I must do something for St. Peter, though about these days I am devoting my attention and money mainly to Salt Peter. After the draft riots in New York and in other cities, in July 1863, myself and other members of the Prudential Committee, which had been formed in Bridgeport, were frequently threatened with personal violence, and rumors were especially rife that Lindencroft would some night be mobbed and destroyed. On several occasions, soldiers volunteered as a guard and came and stayed at my house, sometimes for several nights in succession, and I was also provided with rockets, 
so that in case of an attempted attack I could signal to my friends in the city, and especially to the night watchman at the arsenal, who would see my rockets at Lindencroft and give the alarm. Happily, these signals were never needed. But the rockets came in play long afterwards in another way. My house was provided with a magnetic burglar alarm, and one night the faithful bell sounded. I was instantly on my feet and summoning my servants. One ran and rung the large bell on the lawn, which served in the daytime to call my coachman from the stable. Another turned on the gas while I fired a gun out of the window, and then I went to the top of the house and set off several rockets. The whole region round was instantly aroused. Dogs barked. Neighbors half-dressed but armed flocked over to my grounds every time a rocket went up, and I was by no means sparing of my supply. The whole place was light as day, and in the general glare and confusion we caught sight of two retreating burglars, one running one way, the other another way, and both as fast as their legs could carry them. Nor do I believe that the panic-stricken would-be plunderers stopped running till they reached New York. It always seemed to me that a man who takes no interest in politics is unfit to live in a land where the government rests in the hands of the people. Consequently, whether I expressed them or not, I always had pronounced opinions upon all the leading political questions of the day, and no frivolous reason ever kept me from the polls. Indeed, on one occasion I even hastened my return from Europe so that I could take part in a presidential election. I was a party man, but not a partisan, nor a wire-puller, and I had never sought or desired office, though it had often been tendered to me. This was notoriously true, among all who knew me, up to the year 1865, when I accepted from the Republican Party a nomination to the Connecticut Legislature from the town of Fairfield. And I did this because I felt that it would be an honor to be permitted to vote for the then proposed amendment to the Constitution of the United States to abolish slavery forever from the land. I was elected, and on arriving at Hartford the night before the session began, I found the wire-pullers at work laying their plans for the election of a Speaker of the House. Watching the movements closely, I saw that the railroad interests had combined in support of one of the candidates, and this naturally excited my suspicion. I never believed in making state legislation a mere power to support monopolies. I do not need to declare my full appreciation of the great blessings which railroad interests and enterprise have brought upon this country and the world. But the vaster the enterprise and its power for good, the greater its opportunity for mischief if its power is perverted. The time was when a whole community was tied to the track of one or two railway companies, and it was too truthful to be looked upon as satire to call New Jersey the state of Camden and Amboy. A great railroad company, like fire, is a good servant, but a bad master, and when it is considered that such a company, with its vast number of men dependent upon it for their daily bread, can sometimes elect state officers and legislatures, the danger to our free institutions from such a force may well be feared. Thinking of these things, and seeing in the combination of railroad interests to elect a speaker no promise of good to the community at large, I at once consulted with a few friends in the legislature, and we resolved to defeat the railroad ring, if possible, in caucus. I had not even seen either of the candidates for speakership, nor had I a single selfish end in view to gratify by the election of one candidate or another, but I felt that if the railroad favor could be defeated, the public interest would be subserved. 
we succeeded. Their candidate was not nominated, and the railroad men were taken by surprise. They had had their own way in every legislature since the first railroad was laid down in Connecticut, and to be beaten now fairly startled them. Immediately after the caucus, I sought the successful nominee, the Honorable E.K. Foster of New Haven, and begged him not to appoint as chairman of the railroad committee the man who had held that office for several successive years, and who was, in fact, the great railroad factotum in the state. He complied with my request, and he soon found how important it was to check the strong and growing monopoly, for, as he said, the outside pressure from personal friends in both political parties to secure the appointment of the person to whom I had objected was terrible. Though I had not foreseen nor thought of such a thing until I reached Hartford, I soon found that a battle with the railroad commissioners would be necessary, and my course was shaped accordingly. It was soon discovered that a majority of the railroad commissioners were mere tools in the hands of the railroad companies, and that one of them was actually a hired clerk in the office of the New York and New Haven Railroad Company. It was also shown that the chairman of the railroad commissioners permitted most of the accidents which occurred on that road to be taken charge of and reported upon by the paid lobby agent of that railroad. This was so manifestly destructive to the interest of all parties who might suffer from accidents on the road, or have any controversy, therefore, with the company, that I succeeded in enlisting the farmers and other true men on the side of the right, and we defeated the chairman of the railroad commissioners, who was a candidate for re-election, and elected our own candidate in his place. I also carried through a law that no person who was in the employ of any railroad in the state should serve as railroad commissioner. But the great struggle which lasted nearly through the entire session was upon the subject of railroad passenger commutations. Commodore Vanderbilt had secured control of the Hudson River and Harlem railroads, and had increased the price of commuters' tickets from 200 to 400 percent. Many men living on the line of these roads at distances from 10 to 50 miles from New York had built fine residences in the country on the strength of cheap transit to and from the city and were compelled to submit to the extortion. Commandeer Vanderbilt was a large shareholder in the New York and New Haven Road. Indeed, subsequent elections showed that he had a controlling interest, and it seemed evident to me that the same practice would be put in operation on the New Haven Railroad that commuters were groaning under on the other two roads. I enlisted as many as I could in an effort to strangle this outrage before it became too strong to grapple with. Several lawyers in the assembly had promised me their aid, but long before the final struggle came, every lawyer except one in that body was enlisted in favor of the railroads. What potent influence had been at work with these legal gentlemen could only be surmised. Certain it is that all the railroad interests in the state were combined, and while they had plenty of money with which to carry out their designs and desires, the chances looked slim in favor of those members of the legislature who had no pecuniary interest in the matter, but were struggling simply for justice and the protection of the people. But Yankee stick to was always a noted feature in my character. Every inch of the ground was fought over, day after day, before the Legislative Railroad Committee. Examinations and cross-examinations of railroad commissioners and lobbyists were kept up. Scarcely more than one man, Senator Ballard of Darien, aided me personally in the investigations which took place. But he was a host in himself, and we left not a stone unturned. We succeeded by our persistence 
and letting in considerable light upon a dark subject the man whom i had prevented from being made chairman succeeded in becoming a member of the railroad committee but from the mouths of unwilling witnesses i exhibited his connection with railroad reports railroad laws and railroad lobbyings in such a light that he took to his bed some ten days before the end of the session and actually remained there sick as he said till the legislature adjourned end of chapter thirty eight part one recording by matt benzing oxford ohio